so that this morning, by the grace of God, we can learn more of the Esther part of Esther. In Esther chapter 1, we learn about King Ahasuerus, who is now king over 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. He holds a feast for 187 days for all of his princes and his servants. That's in verse 3. At the end of the 187 days, he asks for Vashti to be brought before his presence to show with her royal crown her glory and beauty. He's been displaying all the beauty of his kingdom, and the queen is one of the points of beauty of any man's kingdom. But the queen, according to verse 12, refused to come. So the king, in great anger, and for good reason, asks the wise men around him what he ought to do according to her according to the law. And so the seven wise men that he has tell the king that she's not only done evil against you, but she's done evil against all the princes of Persia. Because if this gets out, all the women will be strengthened in their resolve to disobey their husbands. And therefore, an evil precedent will be set that will bring much contempt and wrath, as verse 18 puts it. Contempt on the part of wives who are to reverence their husbands. I mean, if Vashti need not reverence Ahasuerus, why should any other wife reverence her husband? So much contempt will arise, and much wrath as a result of much contempt, for husbands will be angry with the insubordination of their wives. And they say in verse 19, if it please the king, he ought to give forth a royal decree, stating that Vashti come no more before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. From this verse, the last two weeks, I've mentioned the subordination of women to their husbands as something Scripture plainly teaches. And last Sunday, briefly exonerated King Ahasuerus by appealing to other cases in Scripture where men divorced their wives and God honored it. Now, this verse does not say he divorced her in the words D-I-V-O-R-C-E-D. It does say that she could never come before him again, which is the same judgment that we read about in verse 14. The concubines were under if the king did not call them by name. If there, something hadn't stuck in his mind and he wanted a particular one and he remembered her name and he could call her by name, otherwise they remained in the second house of women. She has her royal estate taken away from her. As far as being queen, she's totally demoted. As far as being his companion, she never came before him again. For practical purposes, it was a divorce, although no bill of divorcement was given so that she could go marry another man. That's usually what we mean by a divorce. Where a woman is given a piece of paper signed by the man saying, she's no longer my wife, she can be another man's wife. She didn't have that because the king never did that. I mean, if there was a woman that wasn't going to stay in the second house of women, they were just dispatched because no man was ever going to have a woman that the king had had, period. That's just the way it was with Persian kings and with any king. Do you remember what happened one time when the son of David, I believe it was Adonijah, came and asked for the virgin Shunammite, the Shunammite virgin, that had slept with David the last days of his life to keep him warm. Do you remember? Adonijah came and asked for that woman. 
Solomon had already promised Adonijah that he wouldn't kill him until Adonijah asked for something that ridiculous. I mean, women who were put up, who were the king's property, were never allowed to other men, period. What we have in chapter 1 is God arranging circumstances in the Persian Empire so that the position of queen is open. There's a vacancy. There's help wanted, king's court in the Persian Empire. God's providential dealings there. In chapter 2, the wise men recommend the cure, and that is a beauty contest whereby the winner takes all. And we read about that, and we studied that last Sunday, and in verse 17 we read, And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Ashtai. Wasn't it precious to look at the providence of God in the life of the orphan, Esther? I like thinking of her as an orphan. Here's a little neglected child raised by her cousin that God had given beauty to. You know, were the pictures of her taken at five, people could see that she was going to be a good-looking young woman. Why did God give her that beauty? Why didn't he give her brains instead? Because God, from the beginning was helping the Jews win. From the beginning, the fight we were winning. From the beginning, and now I'm talking about the beginning, when God wrote all the members of Esther in a book, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 139, when as yet they were not formed, God said, Esther will be fair and beautiful. He also wrote that she would lose her mother and her father. Now, some of us have suffered loss in our lives, but God has great things in store for his own. And if all of us will be honest and look at all the great things that we have, God has been merciful. God may have taken away her mother and her father so that she was raised by her cousin, but he gave her beauty. And what was the end that he had for Esther? The queen of the Persian Empire. You say, well, God hasn't done anything like that for me. He's made you kings and priests, and you will reign on the earth. You will reign on the earth. Read it for yourself in the book of the Revelation. You're kings and you're priests. You've got a lot more than Esther ever dreamed of having as queen of the sick Persian empire. In chapter 3, <coughs> verses 1 through 6, last Lord's Day, we introduced the next character of the book, and that is Haman, the Agagite. Agag is the general name given to kings of the Amalekites. Numbers chapter 24, I believe it is, and 1 Samuel 15 tell us that fact together. Now the king had ordered, because Haman was so high in the kingdom next to the king himself, that Haman be worshipped and bowed to and reverenced as a divine being. We come to the conclusion of that by the context, that a command was issued concerning Haman's worship. Now you didn't need to tell anyone that the man next to the king deserved some respect and should be honored. In the Persian government, 
You did that automatically, friends. As you're going to see some of the rules, I mean, you didn't enter through the gates of the king's palace in sackcloth. You didn't come before his presence without a smile. You didn't come before his presence unless you had an invitation with RSVP. You didn't get there. There was plenty of respect given to the leaders of the Persian Empire. But here a special command is given. And in conjunction with the fact that this man Haman was an Amalekite, Mordecai remembered as God had commanded him to remember and would not do him reverence. And oh, did that incense Haman. Verse 6. This is where we ended up last Sunday. And he thought scorn to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Haman so hated Mordecai the Jew. And we don't know whether it was 50% because he was a Jew and 50% because he wouldn't bow. We don't know. We just know that he hated. And he hated so much, he thought it was a terrible idea just to go rip Mordecai's head off. That wouldn't be enough. The hatred consumed that man. And so he purposed in his heart, I'll destroy the whole nation of the Jews. That is the kind of hatred men have for the Lord's people. The Lord's people. The Amalekites hated the Lord's people that way when they came out of the land of Egypt. And this man hated Mordecai. I mean, this man hated Mordecai and thought it was a low, despised idea just to kill him. I'll wipe out all of his people. Satan would love to do that, wouldn't he? Right. And how was he going to do it? Wipe out the Lord Jesus Christ through a variety of means? But that Mordecai, I'm speaking of Jesus Christ figuratively, won the victory, didn't he? Amen. Think about it with me. Haman constructed the gallows for his own death. Satan moved the Romans and the Jews to crucify Jesus Christ for his own destruction. Where was Satan destroyed but when Jesus Christ died on the cross? Jesus said that he came into the world for this purpose. For this purpose was the Son of God manifested, 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. That's what we're told. And he destroyed him. With the very means the devil had devised to destroy him. That's what I love about the God we worship. He is so wise and infinite. In his understanding and power, he's able to take the means some have devised against his people and use them as their own destruction, as the source of their own destruction. Remember Psalm 35 that we read last Lord's Day? They shall fall on their own destruction. Mordecai's hate, Haman's hatred, excuse me, of Mordecai and the Jews. Now we come to verse 7 of Esther chapter 3. Verse 7 of Esther chapter 3. In the first month, that is the month Nisan, that's important, the first month, that you know that. 
In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, how long has Esther been his queen? Five years. She became queen the seventh year, we read in chapter 2. In the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast Pur. That is, the lot. I love that little three-letter word, Pur. It's going to become important before we get finished with this book. Why did the Holy Ghost put a Persian word into the Scriptures? And why did he preserve a Persian word in the Scriptures? Why did he just say, and they cast the lot? I'm not going to tell you until Esther chapter 9. I love the three-letter word per. That is the lot before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. The twelfth month of the year was Adar. And what Haman is doing here is he's purposed he's going to destroy all the Jews that are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. And to pick the day he's going to do it, trusting for the luck of his gods, he casts the lot day by day. I mean, he goes through January or Nisan, as it's here called, and then through February, and he still hasn't hit a day. And he casts them again for March and April. And he runs all the way to the 12th month and the 13th day. Now, you couldn't run much farther, or he'd have been through all the days, and you'd have started over again. Now, I read in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Now, there are a few people who claim to believe in the sovereignty of God who would say that's only true when God's people cast the lot. <laughs> Was this God's man? Now, why didn't the lot fall a week away in the month of Nisan? A, a week away in the month of Nisan. A week away would not have given the Jews proper time to have made defense as they will do. For those of you who know the story, God's providence here pushed it off 12 months. Can you imagine this man's hatred? You know, he wanted to get the job over with. And he keeps casting this lot. But he's already said, I'm going to go with whatever the lot says. And God just moves that lot way down to the last month of the year, Adar, the 13th day, to give plenty of time in there to accomplish what you're going to witness. Purr. Don't forget it. Verse 8. And Haman said unto King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. And their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. Now there's a lot here to look at. Let's notice quickly that, of course, Haman is doing this for the king's benefit. Haman doesn't really care about these people. He's worried about the king's profit. That's what he says toward the end of that verse. Notice that he says there is a certain people. He doesn't say who they are. He just says there's a certain people. It's not going to bode well for Ahasuerus here to take something so vague and approve it. That would be like, you know, bringing in a bill that all that it had was a, a signature line for Ronald Reagan, and he signed it, and then you went and typed up the executive order yourself because there's nothing here said specifically. No charges are brought with specifics. The people aren't even named. And as we're going to see, Ahasuerus gives his approval. We'll get to that in a minute. There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of thy kingdom. 
That includes the Jews back at Jerusalem who want to rebuild the temple. He's going to get them all. Judea was a province. And their laws are diverse from all people, neither keep they the king's laws. Now, I can't let the practical message go from this point. So let me get on one of my hobby horses, if you will, again, and ride it for five minutes. It is one of the oldest tactics and most popular tactics of the enemies of Christian people to accuse them to the government of violating the laws of that government and thus turn the government and its force against the Lord's people. See, even in pagan governments, the people do not have the right to go out and commit murder right and left. Even in the Persian government, you didn't do that. I mean, the Soviet Union knows better. They handle murderers better than we do in the U.S. You wouldn't be a mass murderer over there and be off in seven years on probation. No way. Because the enemies of Christians cannot take the lies of the Christians themselves, they get the government to do the dirty work for them. It's always been that way. Let me show you just a couple of examples. Look at Ezra chapter 4. Back a few pages in your Bibles to Ezra chapter 4. The Jews, some of the Jews, have returned to Jerusalem, and they are rebuilding the city and the temple. And some of the men that lived in that part of the country, that part of the Persian Empire, wrote a letter to Artaxerxes the king. This is a different king which can be proved easily because he stopped the building of the temple and it did not, it was not, the, the building was not started again until the second year of Darius. And you're going to find out that the Ahasuerus we're dealing with was instrumental in the building of the temple. And they wrote a letter to the king and they said in verse 12, be it known, let's get verse 11. Let's start with the beginning of the letter, the salutation. Thy servants, the men on this side the river, and at such a time, that's the date, be it known unto the king that the Jews which came up from thee to us are come unto Jerusalem, building the rebellious and the bad city, and have set up the walls thereof and joined the foundations. Be it known now unto the king that if this city be builded and the walls set up again, then will they not pay toll, tribute, and custom and so thou shalt damage the revenue of the kings. Now because we have maintenance from the king's palace, and it was not meet for us to see the king's dishonor, therefore have we sent and certified the king, that search may be made in the books of the records of thy fathers, so shalt thou find in the book of the records, and know that this city is a rebellious city, and hurtful unto kings and provinces, and that they have moved sedition within the same of old time, for which cause was this city destroyed. We certify the king that if this city be builded again, and the walls thereof set up, by this means thou shalt have no portion on this side the river. What's the bottom line? If you let these Christians, I'm using that word in a modified sense, if you let these Christians alone, they're going to break the rules of our government. They're not going to pay their taxes. And you're not going to get any revenue from this side, the river Euphrates. There are the enemies of the Lord. See, 
they don't move in and wipe the Jews out that are building Jerusalem. They try to get the imperial power to do it for them. You do the dirty work. And they slander them by saying they're not going to pay their taxes. Come over to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 16. The book of Acts, chapter 16. Now, when Paul visited the Philippines, that is Philippi, when Paul visited Philippi, he preached there, and he was cast into prison. And how, what basis, or what was the grounds, or what was the charge laid against Paul that he deserved to be in prison? In verse 20, And brought them to the magistrates, saying, Acts 16:20, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs, which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. Notice, they do not go after the moral differences between the Jews and the Romans, which there were many. They go after the civil differences between the Jews and the Romans. Look at chapter 17 of the book of Acts, verses 5 through 8. Paul is now in Athens. I mean, Thessalonica, excuse me. Verse 5, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, and gathered a company, and set all the city on an uproar, and assaulted the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, here's the charge, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also whom Jason hath received. And these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus. And they troubled the people and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. They did it in the days of Ezra. They did it in the days of Esther. They did it in the days of Paul. And they'll still do it in our day. We have got to make sure that as far as we can, so much as lieth in us, we live peaceably and provide all things honest before the citizens of our nation. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2. Here is Peter giving us the bottom line of this lesson. Peter understood this tactic of our enemies to discredit us before our government and accuse us of wrongdoing. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Now, what are we in this world? Strangers and pilgrims. Now, does that mean because we're strangers and pilgrims in this world, we can disregard the civil governments of this world? He's going to give you an earful. Let's go. 1 Peter 2, 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. What kind of lust, Paul? I mean, Peter. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. They're going to accuse you of doing evil. You make sure that you have a testimony before them of good works to shut their mouths, 
have a conversation, a manner of life that is honest among the Gentiles. And he tells us how, beginning in 13. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God. What's the will of God, Peter? Submitting to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it's the king himself or whether it's his cabinet or whether it's his officials that he has appointed to do his work. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. What are we to do? We are to do the will of God by obeying our civil government. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. This is the will of God. Some people want to know, I wonder what the will of God is in this matter. Well, I'll tell you, it's right here. So is the will of God that with well-doing we can put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. The number one purpose for paying our toll and tribute and custom and taxes and submitting to every ordinance is to shut their mouths and give them no ground against us when they try to turn the civil authority against the Lord's people. That's what we're to do. We're to have our conversation honest that whereas they might accuse us of being an evildoer, By our good works, they can't say a word. We put to silence their ignorance, trying to accuse us of wrongdoing. We need to work diligently to have a testimony before this world of not trying to overthrow our government. Yes, we may stand for different principles of righteousness, but when it comes to granting authority and submission to our government, we are first in line. We can be epitomized like Oliver North. We respect authority. We do the will of our leaders so far as we can. Yes, there come times when we have to disregard our government in order to preserve our religious freedom or preserve our very existence. But we do not have that situation today in America. So we need to make every effort we can to be without offense. That's why Jesus said, although they had no right to collect, to collect taxes from him, he said, lest we offend them, go pay. Go pay. There's that offense. It'll create an offense and turn the government against the Lord's people so that they can't lead quiet and peaceable lives in all godliness and honesty. For instance, if we were going to have a school building, which we will never have as long as I am your pastor and am not senile, as a church property and as part of this church ministry. If we were, however, as Christians, what is wrong with buying a fire extinguisher or two and having some exits and having a ramp for handicapped people and having enough parking spots in the parking lot to justify the students there? Listen, is that something they can't afford? They ought to do those things. They ought to do those things, to be without offense. 
Because do you know what happens to us because of what they do? We're given a bad name. We're radicals. Because they're radical. Because they don't want to abide by some rules. I don't like the rules. I think it's my right whether I put up a fire extinguisher or not. Don't get me on that subject. I'd like to take a fire extinguisher. Don't get me on that subject. I feel as strongly as all of you about some of the ordinances of our country. But I know this, that God says to obey them and to disregard them and speak evil of those dignities is the sign of a reprobate. The book of Jude and 2 Peter chapter 2. And if they say it, we ought to do it, even if we don't like it. We don't like paying our taxes. I mean, I'm sure when Brother William signs that statement every three months to send the income in from his shop, have to write a check, take out a tremendous chunk of what he earned. Yes, we inside realize that most of that's being wasted by a frivolous government, but we pay it anyway. Why? Jesus Christ had to pay it. And if they ever haul us before court for the testimony of Jesus Christ, and they're trying to raise dirt against us, I want to be like Jesus. Couldn't find a thing except this statement that I'll build the temple again in three days. And if they want to crucify me for saying that Jesus Christ was in the ground three days and three nights, I'll gladly hang, Amen. the Lord willing. But let's not hang because they look back, they send our Social Security number to the IRS and find out that we've been lying to the government. Oh, would they have a heyday if they could find that. This is what Haman does. If you're still looking at Esther chapter 3, this is what... Haman tries to do to the Jews. He accuses them of civil disobedience. They neither keep they the king's laws. Therefore, it is not for the king's profit to suffer them. We ought to be known as the best citizens of our nation as far as supporting our government. Haman goes on in verse 9 to say, If it please the king, let it be written that they may be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the hands of those that have the charge of the business to bring it into the king's treasuries. Now the business, there is the financial business. I will pay 10,000 talents of silver to the treasurers, to the businessmen, to bring it into the king's treasuries. It doesn't make any sense here, and it doesn't make any sense with the passage we're going to read later, to think that that's 10,000 talents of silver to the men who are going to do the killing. All the princes and servants and deputies and lieutenants of the governor of the government were glad to do the killing because Haman was involved and Ahasuerus said to do it. They didn't need to be paid. All they needed was the decree. Haman here is showing his degree of hatred by saying, I will take from my personal wealth and give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's treasury if you'll let me do this. What's that called, generally? A bribe. Bribery. Did that happen with Jesus Christ? Any bribes made? What happened with Judas? I read of 30 pieces of silver. What happened with the soldiers who were stationed outside the tomb? Paid them a great sum of money to keep their mouths shut at what they had seen. Wouldn't that have been a story? 
about what they did see and what they couldn't do after they did see it. Bribery right here, appealing to the king's greed. 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents of silver is quite a sum, friends. Just to put it in perspective, when David gave his final love offering to the Lord for the building of the temple, remember David was the one that accumulated the gold and the silver, the iron and the brass, and Solomon was the one that put it all together. His last offering was 7,000 talents of refined silver. You can read it in 1 Chronicles 29. Just to put it in perspective, how much this man was paying to destroy the Jews. You say, did he have more than David? Not quite. I mean, if you go back to 1 Chronicles 22, everything that David raised during his lifetime was a thousand thousand talents. That's a million. So 10,000 wasn't everything in the world, but it was a decent sum because you know David would have given quite an offering to the Lord, and it's recorded in 1 Chronicles 29. But here we have 10,000 talents that Haman is willing to pay for the destruction of the Jews. Now you say, well, Haman was willing to give up that much? As you're going to find out, the decree was, we kill them all and take the spoil for a prey. Wicked men don't usually, aren't usually quite so generous. He knew he was going to get his 10,000 back because he was going to take it from the Jews. Now, if he was going to take it from the Jews, and if the, a number of people were going to be destroyed, that means that tax revenues would decline, wouldn't they? If all of a sudden we wiped out the state of Delaware, would the tax revenues of the U.S. government go down? Yes, they would. Haman knows that, so he's bribing the king. I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver for you, for you to let me or approve me to get rid of some of your taxpayers. That's the little trade-off that's going on right here in the ninth verse. Verse 10 is pitiful. And the king took his ring from his hand and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the Jew's enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also, to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. King Ahasuerus says, don't worry about the silver. Keep it. It's given back to you. I don't need it. You don't need to pay it. The people are given to you. Go do whatever you want. Doesn't take the bride. He's like that with Haman. And he doesn't check into a single thing that Haman accused the Jews of. So far, we have tried and have been successful to exonerate the king in his actions. At this stage, it is impossible Look what the Bible says about good rulers. Look at Proverbs 25 and verse 2. Proverbs 25 and verse 2. He doesn't know who the people are. He doesn't know if there's any of them in his court. He doesn't know what their crimes are specifically. He doesn't know what the, the loss in revenue will be. But he approves it. Takes his ring off, which is the sign of the Persian government and tells Haman to go to it, don't even bother with the 10,000 talents of silver. Proverbs 25 and verse 2, It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. It is the honor of a king to search out a matter before he executes judgment. Here he is 
giving a free hand to Haman to judge a group of people for crimes that have not been proven. That is not typical for Ahasuerus. We can read back in chapter 2 when Mordecai came to him with the conspiratorial rumor that two of his chamberlains were about to murder him. It says, verse 23, and when inquisition was made of the matter, it was found out. That is what kings are supposed to do. You can read it for yourself in the book of Deuteronomy, where God tells his judges to make diligent inquisition before they execute judgment in a matter. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Things are to be established in the mouths of two or three witnesses, not in the mouth of one witness, especially the extermination of a nation. King Ahasuerus certainly fails here by not being an honorable king. Honorable kings will search out a matter. Solomon wrote that. Solomon lived that. Do you remember in 1 Kings chapter 3 when those two harlots came to him with a dead baby? Did he search out the matter? Yes, indeed. Remember what they, the one harlot wanted to kill the living baby. He wasn't going to execute judgment like that until he searched out the matter. Did he search it out? Did he find the answer? Yes, he did. He showed the wisdom and honor of a good king. In the book of Ezra, chapter 5, we need not turn there. You can read where the Jews sent to this same Ahasuerus and requested of him to search the records of the Mede and Persian government to find the decree of Cyrus that gave them permission. What did the king do? Did he say, well, there's no such record? They made diligent inquisition, and it wasn't even in Shushan. They had to dig them up in some other city, and they finally found the decree. There's the honorable Ahasuerus again. But as far as Esther chapter 4 and verse 10 and 11 are concerned, he's lost. He's become infatuated with Haman, and he takes Haman's word, won't even take the payment, gives him his ring, go and do with the people whatever you want. He doesn't even know who they are. Some of you have been in churches where you had ministers much like Ahasuerus. Some of you have told me about men being excluded without matters being searched out and proven. That's one thing we'll not do in this congregation. That's ruling well, if I say so myself. Diligent inquisition and matters will be searched out and proven and all things will be provided honest before this congregation. It's the honor of a king to search out a matter and will not exclude anyone before such a matter has been well searched out, inquisition made, and things proven to the satisfaction of all reasonable men. Some of you have been around those who just got rid of their personal enemies by way of exclusion. will not do that. And I hope that in your homes, when you discipline your children, it's not based on impulse. It's not based on hearsay. It is based on evidence. And that you as a king in your home search out the matter before you jump on the child because you had a bad day at work. I hope those of you who are supervisors make diligent inquisition before you execute judgment. It is the honor of a king to search out a matter. Be honorable in your homes. Be honorable with your wives. Give them the benefit of the doubt until proven guilty. That is a godly principle, isn't it? Innocent until proven guilty. 
And what does God say is necessary for proof? Two or three witnesses, diligent inquisition, search, searching and proving of the matter. In verse 11, well, verses 10 and 11, the king gives his ring. Now, a ring was a special thing. It wasn't a wedding ring. It was a ring that had an insignia on it on which a stamp in wax could be made on any document to show the king's authority was accompanying that letter. The little letter would be sealed with wax, and the imprint of the king's signet would be there, which gave royal authority to whatever was contained on the piece of paper or the document. Now Haman has it, and he has full authority to do what he wants. Verse 12, and typical with the book of Esther, you'll find some lengthy verses. Did you know where the longest verse in the Bible is? How many of you know the shortest verse? John 11:35. Jesus wept. Where's the longest? Esther chapter 8 and verse 9, and is it a mouthful? But Esther chapter 3 and verse 12 isn't too far behind. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month. We've got eleven months to go. And there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants. I wonder if 13, being an unlucky day, came from the book of Esther in some warped pagan's mind. Because it was an unlucky day for the Jews. The day the decree was issued and the day it was to be executed. But the God we worship doesn't know anything about luck, does he? He turned the 13th day to be his day, as you'll see, and the 14th and the 15th. Then were the king's scribes called on the thirteenth day of the first month, that is, Nisan, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every province, and to the rulers of every people of every province according to the writing thereof, and to every people after their language. In the name of King Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. And the letters were sent by post into all the king's provinces, to destroy, to kill, and to cause to perish all Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, even upon the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month Adar, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. That's the day that Pur had selected. That is the lot of the Persians. The copy of the writing for a commandment to be given in every province was published unto all people that they should be ready against that day. The post went out. What's the post? The post office. Listen, Scripture is not as old and as primitive as people think it is. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment. This wasn't exactly a personal first-class letter. This was the king sending some mail, so they went faster than usual. They took fresh ponies. If it was the Pony Express, they didn't use ponies, as we'll see. They did have horses and some other special animals, but we'll get to that in a chapter later. The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace. And the king and Haman sat down to drink. Why, buddy, buddy, they're just as content as can be with this decree for the extermination of the Jews sent forth into all 127 provinces. But the city, Shushan, was perplexed. The city Shushan was perplexed. Until a people, 
have totally lost their minds, people are perplexed by unrighteousness and wickedness in government places. Perplexed means to be confused, wondering what's going on, fearful. It is said the disciples in Luke 24 and verse 4 were much perplexed when they came to the tomb, found the stone rolled away, and the body of Jesus Christ missing. Confused. What happened? Wondering. Fearful as to what might have happened to the body of their Lord. Keeping your finger in Esther, look at Ecclesiastes, where Solomon tells us such is life in this world, to find evil in high places. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 and verse 1. So I returned and considered all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold the tears of such as were oppressed, and they had no comforter. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no comforter. Wherefore I praise the dead which are already dead, more than the living which are yet alive. Yea, better is he than both they which hath not yet been, who hath not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. It is a fact of human existence that Edie Amins and President Reagans and others will manifest wickedness in places of power. You say, well, what did President Reagan do? President Reagan has been president for eight years and 1.5 million unborn children with whom there is neither power nor comforter continue to die every year. Why hasn't he stopped it? If he put his mind to it, he could, but he'd take a lot of heat, but there'd be enough people in this country that would defend him if he would do that. There's no comforter on their part, is there? Naturally speaking. Is there anyone that hears their cries? There is a God that hears the cries of the fatherless. And I call them fatherless because any child that is destroyed in his mother's womb must not have a father in any sense of the word, but a biological sense. The city Shushan was perplexed. Are there a lot of people in our nation perplexed by our government? a so-called Christian nation that aborts babies, a so-called Christian nation that allows people to be maimed, raped, and murdered, and yet doesn't execute judgment against their oppressors. With their oppressors is power. Haven't you ever read a story of some poor woman being raped and then murdered? Who has the power? There is no comforter. The old, there is comfort if our government would execute judgment. To see that person hang in public or to be stoned in public or burned in public, that would be comfort. I would be comforted. Solomon said it would be better to be dead. and he, Then he said, yea, it would be better never to have lived than to experience this particular source of frustration. For those of you who do read the newspaper, and a few magazines, and listen to the news, and think about what's going on in our world a little. Is it not, be honest with me, a great source of grief to see 
the foolishness, the evil that is executed in high places against people who have no power. A great source of frustration until you enter the sanctuary and realize that there is a God in heaven that rules over all and vengeance is mine I will repay if we didn't believe in those three word words give us a gun and blow our brains out you say well that's ridiculous what did Solomon say in Ecclesiastes 4 this place is insanity and you ought to kill yourself because it would be better to be dead than to be alive and to see what goes on in our world. I will repay. Now, the only word, way that those words can mean something is to see that God repays. That is why we have the Old Testament, that we, through patience and what? Comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. How do you have hope in the words, I will repay? Because he's done it before, and he's promised he'll do it again. And when we read in Genesis of a flood where he repaid, and we read in Exodus where the Egyptian taskmasters were repaid, and when we read in Leviticus and Numbers and Judges, ah, doesn't that give us patience? Patience. We can sit back and we can look at an Edi Amen. We can beg God to destroy him. We can thank God that we've been saved, but we take hope in the three words, I will repay. We can read a newspaper account of garbage bags being full of little fetuses at the backside of doctors' offices and hospitals, and we can take comfort in the words, I will repay. We can hear about someone who's murdered three people and he's put on probation seven years later, and we take comfort in the words, I will repay these sodomites I will repay that's what patience and comfort mean when they build hope we hope and remember hope isn't a wild guess hope is a confident trust that God is there and he is coming and he will do what he said the city was perplexed people are always perplexed with unrighteousness in authority now as I, as I try to do God being my witness with every point I can. Let's make it practical. Let's make it practical. Unrighteousness in a place of authority causes the people under that authority to be perplexed. Are any of you in a position of authority? All of you, men, are in a position of authority. You are in authority over your wives and you are in authority over your children. Does the Bible have anything to say about children and wives being perplexed? No, it doesn't, you say. You're right. It doesn't use the word perplexed. It uses the word discouraged. Does it not? In Ephesians chapter 6, Colossians chapter 3, Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, lest they be discouraged. Perplexity. Overmuch in the way of wrath. Not enough 
in the way of tenderness, mercy, and compassion upon them the way God shows you day by day. You know, we'd be downright lenient if we ever tried to treat our children the way God treats us, wouldn't we? You say, God hasn't been that merciful to me. See me after the service. We'll see if we can't find some examples of his mercy towards you on a day-by-day basis. Whenever a person in authority abuses that authority because he has the power, and listen, big daddies have the power over their children, and big husbands have the power over their wives, but that doesn't give you the right to abuse that power over either person under your authority. When you abuse it, you cause perplexity in the minds of those under that authority. Why great big daddy has to stoop to beating his frustration out on me? Where's your compassion? Where's your tenderness? Where's your forgiveness? Where is your equity? They're five. You're 35. God didn't ever intend them to have the mental faculties that you have at 35. If so, he'd have never given you to be their parents. They could have managed by themselves. Why in the world do you think you are their parents? Because they can't do at five what you should expect from them even at six. We need to remember some mercy and compassion on the part of those in authority. Why do you think Peter said to dwell, for husbands to dwell with their wives according to knowledge? If you dwell without knowledge, you're just like Ahasuerus. How much knowledge did Ahasuerus have of Haman's decree? None. And when you behave with your wife without thinking about her weaknesses, her differences from you, thank God there are some differences. I mean, Jim Edwards, did you want to be married to me? Thank God there's some differences. And you better recognize those differences and take recognition of them in your behavior towards your wife and towards your children. Listen, when we abuse our authority, we cause perplexity on the part of our children. When we're inconsistent, we cause perplexity. You want to, let's talk about the inhabitants of Shushan. Here's Ahasuerus. In time past, what was his manner? What was his manner, friends? He looked into the law. What should I do according to the law? We're generally consistent with our children. Then we come home. Daddy didn't get a promotion today when he had his review. You know, the child's done some little insignificant thing, so you beat the tar out of them. Taking out your frustration, like Haman did, on those without power. Do you know what that does? It causes perplexity. You know what perplexity breeds? Rebellion. Because they can't understand what's going on. And as they develop, and they see that inconsistency, and they see the lack of tenderness and equity toward them, You'll, pay, you'll get it, you'll see it, because they'll rebel. When a king speaks kind, you know, I, you know, I could turn all through the book of the Old Testament. 
When kings deal kindly with their people, their people will follow them to hell and back, to speak figuratively. When kings lay too much of a burden on their people, what happens? They rebel. You want to know why children and teenagers rebel? Not enough time from the parents. Inconsistency on the part of the parents. Taking out frustration on the children by the parents. And other sources. But I'm going to tell you what the source the Bible says. The Bible says it's because the fathers provoke them to wrath. Few mothers create rebellious sons. The Bible doesn't even say anything about it. It says fathers. I want my children to be willing to follow their leader. We better make sure that we're consistent and not like Ahasuerus in Esther chapter 3. The city of Shushan was perplexed. Couldn't understand. The man that went to the law, the man that would make inquisition, the man that would search out a matter, just lets Haman come in, his buddy-buddy sits down, drinks some wine, gives him his ring, and says, go to it. Couldn't understand what was happening. Let's make sure his fathers and his husbands, men, and I am talking to the men, you practice. What does Solomon say that he wrote Proverbs 4 in chapter 1 and verse 3? Wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. I don't want to see any perplexed children or young people in our congregation. And if you're going to get plenty of help in the next few weeks on the ways that you perplex them, God helping me. But you need to begin looking at the way you're training your children and living with them, loving them, disciplining them, all the aspects of having children, are they perplexed? Do you ever cause them confusion at your inconsistency? God save us from that, to have our own homes perplexed like Shushan. Poor Mordecai, he gets the news. The, the decree is issued in the palace. Chapter 4 and verse 1, he rents his clothes, he puts sackcloth on with ashes, he goes out into the midst of the city and cries with a loud and bitter cry. What a sight. A man dressed in a burlap bag with ashes sprinkled over him, his clothing's torn at home, and he's crying out in the middle of the city. Yea, verse 2 tells us he came even before the king's gate, for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. He didn't go to work that day. He didn't sit there in his chair of judgment in the king's gate because no way was the king going to allow someone in that apparel to sit there in his chair. But here he is mourning. Let me tell you, you know how what kind of ridiculous things I have to answer sometimes? Why, two weeks ago, there's a man I've been dealing with in Pennsylvania. There's a lot of contacts you people don't know about. I don't sit at home twiddling my thumbs most of the time. But this man in Pennsylvania that I've been working with on a number of subjects writes to me on fasting and sends his ministers teaching on the subject. You won't believe this, but I'm going to tell you just to show you how far out some people are. This man believes that all of prophecy was fulfilled in Nero. It's the preterist view of 
Bible prophecy. Jesus Christ returned to earth in 70 A.D. at the destruction of Jerusalem, and he's not coming again. It's all over. The book of Revelation was completely fulfilled by 70 A.D. The beast and the Antichrist and the great whores, pagan Rome, and Nero is the beast. That's the reason I'm giving you that is you know what they've got to do to a lot of scripture to get that done about the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, when it comes to fasting, fasting is the preaching of the gospel. Fasting means preaching the gospel. It doesn't mean abstaining from food. And fasting or abstaining from food and drink isn't going to help you a bit in your prayer life. Now, that's the position they take. You'd love the letter I wrote back, for those of you who love sarcasm, because that was the last I'm going to deal with that fool. I mean, there's a place where you just cut it off and say, forget it. I mean, if he doesn't respond to the letter that I wrote him, he's not going to respond to anything. I want to make a point, though, right here and right now. Fasting does accomplish things in prayer. And if you've got a prayer life that hasn't accomplished much, try it. You may like it. Fasting, sackcloth and ashes. Fasting is not even mentioned here. It's the apparel. Doing something unpleasant for our bodies to show our sincerity. I've preached on fasting before. God hears his people when they fast and pray. Even in the New Testament, Paul wrote the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 7, 5, when speaking of marriage and the marital relationship, he said husbands and wives could come apart from each other for a time, if it be, to give themselves to prayer and fasting. Now, there's a New Testament instruction for New Testament families. Husbands and wives from time to time come apart in their relationship, don't eat, don't drink, give yourself to prayer. You'd be amazed at what you might accomplish. How many times do we do that? We're pitiful, aren't we? We live in the fat 20th century, and to deprive ourselves from a meal sometimes would be too much. He is showing his sincerity. And verse 3 tells us that in every province, Mordecai was in Shushan, but in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, and fasting, and weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Well, now Esther's maids come and tell her what Mordecai is doing. She doesn't know what's going on. See, the king didn't sit down like President Reagan does, or Jimmy Carter did, with his wife and say, what should I do in Iran? And Rosalind gives him some recommendations as to what he should do, and then he executes her wishes. You don't think that happened? Read about Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. Esther doesn't even know that the king has signed a decree for the extermination of the Jews. She has to send her maid to inquire of Mordecai why he was weeping and mourning in the street. Verse 7, And Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him, not a maid, but a chamberlain, that had happened unto him and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. See, this was money from Haman to the treasury. Mordecai tells Esther about the sum to show Esther the degree and level of hatred that Haman has for the Jewish people. 
Also he, that is Mordecai, gave him, that is Hatach, Esther's servant, the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, and to declare it unto her, and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him, and to make request before him for her people. And Hatach came and told Esther the words of Mordecai. So Mordecai is bringing Esther up to date very quickly. A decree has gone out. It's for the extermination of the Jews. Haman hates the Jews, and he's the one behind it. You need to go in before the king and tell him and save our lives. Problem. Problem. Verse, not, uh, verse 10. And Esther spake unto Hatach, and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. Here's, the com here's what Esther sends back. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Esther reminds Mordecai of a law that everyone knows. No one walks into the inner court where Ahasuerus sits on his throne and reigns over the Persian Empire without an invitation by name. The only exception is that if you enter the door, the king for some reason wants to save your life, he can hold up his golden scepter. doesn't have to say a word, just hold out a stick. And that meant that you lived. I mean, kings had power. And Solomon says, and I love it, and you know I love it, it's a comely thing to see a king against whom there is no rising up. I mean, you didn't even walk into that man's inner court unless he held out his scepter to you, and then you lived. If he just sat there and looked you in the eye, wouldn't that be... Think about it! Some of you like to read your Bibles without thinking. I try to imagine it, what it meant for Ahasuerus to sit there on his throne. Someone walks in, you know, one of his deputies. He, he got up on the wrong side of the bed that morning. He just looks at the guy. It'd take about 10 seconds. They'd have his head covered, and he'd be out with his head removed. That was King Ahasuerus. And Esther is saying, wait a minute, Mordecai. I, I like your idea that we do need to do something to save the Jews. But go in before the king? Did you forget the law that everyone understands that you don't enter in unless you want to put your life in your hands? Now look at the reasoning. You want to take a lesson in reasoning? Watch Mordecai. Three, three angles he goes after Esther to convert her. You can tell she doesn't want to go in very badly. Mordecai will change her opinion with some excellent reasoning. Verse 12, And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. Here's his answer. Number, reasoning, argument number one. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. Don't you deceive yourself, Esther, by thinking because you're the queen that you're going to be spared and it'll just be the rest of the Jews that die. Why couldn't Esther be spared? 
Persian law could not be altered or changed. What was the decree? All the Jews in all the provinces were to be destroyed. Don't deceive yourself, Esther. Here's the line of reasoning. Don't deceive yourself thinking you're going to get away with it. Don't think in your heart you're going to be spared because you're his pretty queen. The law has been issued. It's unchangeable. You'll die right along with the rest of the Jews. That's his first line. Verse 14. Next line of reasoning. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. Mordecai here shows his great faith in God. God. Mordecai knew that the Jews were God's people. Mordecai knew why they had been back in Jerusalem. They had come under the decree of Cyrus when God had said, My city will be rebuilt after 70 years. Mordecai knew that. Mordecai knew the Jews weren't going to be destroyed. You say, well, why was he praying and fasting? Why was Daniel praying and fasting after he read the 70 weeks? They prayed and fasted for the, prov- for the promises of God even when they knew they were going to be fulfilled. To show their sincerity before God. Mordecai knew that. He said, if you don't save us, then somewhere else salvation, somewhere else deliverance will arise to the Jews from another place. But do you know what's going to happen to you? You and your father's house will be destroyed. Now, her father was dead, but that doesn't mean her brothers and sisters were dead. And he said, if you won't save us, then God will save us by some other means, and because you didn't use your God-given means to try to save us, you'll be destroyed. Whether by God directly or by the Jews indirectly, it doesn't make a whole lot of difference. She was worthy of death if she wouldn't use the means to try to save the Jews. Reasoning number two. That's pretty good for us, isn't it? Enlargement's going to come from somewhere. And I'm sure Esther, having been raised by Mordecai, knew about the 70-year promises also. Yes, the Jews were going to be delivered from somewhere. Last part of verse 14. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Appealing to the providence of God. Now, wait a minute. What do you think God blessed a Jewish orphan to be the queen of Persia for? What do you think his purpose was? Think about it, Esther. Why are you the queen of Persia as a Jew? Five years you've been the queen. He hasn't put you away yet. Why do you think you're there? Three lines of reasoning. One, if you don't do something, you're going to get it. Being queen is not going to save you. Number two, if you don't do something, we will be delivered, and then you'll be destroyed for not having help. Number three, what do you think you're queen for anyway? That's pretty good. I mean, in two verses, doesn't that carry some weight? Especially when she obeyed Mordecai as a child. Verse 15, Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer, Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and either eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way, 
and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now Esther hadn't been in before that king for 30 days, but she's going to do it anyway. She asked Mordecai to get all the Jews together that are in Shushan. They don't have time to send letters out to everyone else. Get the Jews together in Shushan, fast and pray for three days and three nights. And she said, I will go in to the king. It's not according to the law, but I'll go in anyway. If I perish, I perish. Now, this is a great practical lesson relative to fatalism. She used her means. She used, and you were going to see some more means. I mean, she just didn't go in in sackcloth. She got dressed up for the occasion. We'll get to the, her means this evening. I want to finish with this point right here. She asked for all the Jews in Shushan to pray for her. She promised to pray and fast the same way. But notice and observe her contentment in the face of death. If I perish, I perish, because her trust is in God. Once you, by prayer and fasting, make known your request to God relative to an action on your part, you should be able to go ahead with that action with confidence because whatever occurs is obviously going to be the will of God. If I perish, then I perish. It was not God's purpose to use me as the source of deliverance for the Jews at this time. But she's going to fast and pray for it. You know, I think of so many different verses where we are to do the best we can and trust the Lord for the rest. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. It didn't matter that the queen was going to go in, that she was his queen, that she had obtained favor in his sight. If the Lord wasn't in it, she wasn't going to survive. That's why the prayer. But we've always got to combine the two together. And once we've prayed and submitted it to the Lord, there ought to be a peace that passes all understanding to keep our hearts and minds. She says, if I perish, I perish. Her heart and mind is kept by her trust in the praying and fasting to God for her deliverance and for blessing upon her effort. We should do the wisest thing we know. What was the wisest thing the Jews in Shushan could have done to divert the purpose of Haman. Send Mordecai running into the inner court in sackcloth and ashes? What was, listen, do we need to pray about what the wisest thing to do was? Notice, they didn't pray and ask God what to do. Did they? Mordecai flat out tells her, it's obvious. Listen, you're queen. You ought to have some pull. We're going to use the best source of pull and leverage with the king that we have. That's devising things in our own heart. Proverbs 16, 9. A man's heart deviseth his way, but the Lord directeth the steps. When she stepped into that inner court and stood there, whether he held out the scepter or whether he sat there motionless was the Lord's doing. But getting to the inner court was her doing. It's as it is said in James chapter 4. 
that those of you, you we can say, we're going to go into such and such a city, continue there a year, planning a year in advance, buy and sell, and get gain. Four words have to be appendage to that plan for it to be a most scriptural plan. What are those four words? If the Lord will. We will go into such and such a city. You pick the city. Continue there a year. You pick the time. Buy and sell. You figure out your product and get gain. You determine your profit margin. If the Lord will. God's given us a mind. We use it the very best we can. And trust the Lord for the rest. The Bible is filled with that. People so many times, they want to read a book, they want to ask the pastor, they want to pray, what is the will of God for my life? Don't they? What is the will of God for my life? The will of God for your life is for you to exercise the God-given understanding and wisdom that you have to the best of your ability and trust Him to bless it. That is the will of God for your life. You say, well, I see these two houses and I don't know which one's the Lord's will for me. Pick the one you like. That's the one that's the Lord's will. If you pick it and you tell the Lord, I'm going to buy this house if it's your will. Go in and make your offer. If it's refused, guess what? It's not his will at that price. You say, well, how do I know I should pay more? Is it worth it or not? Why do you want to always look for some supernatural force to invade your mind and tell you something? The supernatural force has already invaded your mind. It's called the mind of the Lord. He's given us a mind. He's given us intelligence. Mordecai could look at all the options he had. He could assassinate Haman. He could hide in the mountains like Lot did with his two daughters. He could do all sort of things. No, he thought of the wisest action. Mordecai knew why Esther was queen. Let's use her and then trust the Lord for the rest. The will of God for your life is for you to apply your wisdom in matters like business and finance and owning a home the very best you can and trust him for the rest. That's why he gave you a mind. He does not lead us around this globe like robots. He's given you a mind for you to make the wisest decision you can and pray and fast over it. If you're facing a dilemma that you consider unusually important and significant in your life, then go without food for a while. Sit at home. Don't work. Don't allow yourself any pleasure. Spend some time in prayer with your wife. And then do what the wisdom God has given you tells you you ought to do and trust him for his blessing. Mordecai and Esther used the best of their wisdom and were going to go against the law, but it was the only chance they had to avert disaster. Then they trusted the Lord for three days and three nights and went and did it. It was Mordecai and Esther that got her to the inner court. It was God that got the scepter off the king's knee. May the Lord be praised in that matter. We'll continue it this evening.